Conjurers, thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode. We did want to go ahead and let you guys know that this episode does contain references to suicide, so please go ahead and make a personal decision on if you'd like to continue on. <clears throat> I do my, my vocal warm-ups. Me, 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 me. Welcome, Conjurers, and Happy Halloween. We are so excited to present to you our first podcast from the great month of October. Happy Halloween, Cameron. Happy Halloween. It's Halloween every day in October, or at least it is on this podcast. (laughs) Truly. October 1st, Spooky Ryan woke out of bed and unfurled his his bony Halloween wings and embraced that... (laughs) That Halloween incredibly wings. hot. You're giving me Oct- such a Georgia. visual here. I would like to see it. Hey, you, you will. You will. Spooky Ryan is here for the absolute rest of the month. Um, you know, stealing souls and terrifying children and not normal, normal things. Obviously. Have you already figured out what you're gonna do for Halloween? Do you know doing in terms of costume or what? Yeah, in costume. Yeah. Okay, so possibly. Originally it was mm-hmm. going to be it was gonna be very, very demonic. Um, but due to, you know, some, some budgetary restraints, I think I'm going to actually <laughs> modify an older costume and I'm going to be a very, uh, corrupted pumpkin scarecrow man. What about you? Ooh, scary. I don't know yet. I've been, well, listen, I've been telling Kevin that we need to get this figured out for a while. And I know that you and Liz did this last year. We're thinking about being mm. vampires and making our dog Kiko a bat. Oh, that is wonderful. That is yeah. wonderful. We're not decided on it, but we're thinking about it. Well, it's it's good because I've decided for you. You're doing that. Oh, really? <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Honestly, I think it'd be great because I think I have makeup for it that could look really cool. So, Ooh. No, that sounds like a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm pretty interested in doing that. I, you know, there's a lot of really cool and unique ways that you can do vampires. That's true. Like it's it's easy to fall into kind of the the cliche, but you can really put your own your own spice on it, your own jazz. Speaking of which, I think we um have watched something recently that did just that. Yeah. Okay. So big spoiler alert here for anyone yeah, that hasn't yeah. seen <laughs> Midnight <laughs> Mass. You know, go ahead and skip the next two or three minutes because mm-hmm. oh my god, that we have show. Many things to discuss. <laughs> It completely blindsided me with the direction that oh, yeah. it went. Yes. Um, you know, for those of you that aren't, you know, that don't care about spoilers and haven't seen it, Midnight Mass is about the resurgence of faith on a small fishing island. I mean, on a population of 115, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the slow realization that the uh, the new pastor is more familiar than they thought he was and that he may have that, a penchant That got for... me. Like, that twist really got me. I did not expect that. Really? That was actually one of the ones that I think I saw coming. Really? Yeah. Cause okay, so there were some of the characters. Again, big spoiler alerts here, guys. Stop listening if you haven't watched it and go watch it because it's incredible. But there are lots of actors and actresses that are aged up. You know, and, and Oh, a, I did a, a, notice that. Yeah. Yeah. So we were kind of like, we're sitting here thinking like, okay, so there's obviously going to be some event that, you know, de-ages people. And then we were like, wait a minute. What if the new pastor is the Monsignor that they're talking about? Shook. Um, because at first, for some reason, like, I thought that the new pastor, like, was a vampire and, like, had killed 
the old Monsignor. So oh, I was okay. a little confused. Oh. So you saw the vampires coming then? I did figure out the vampires, yes. I don't know how. I can't remember. <laughs> oh, wow. That, see, that, that was what took us completely, completely off guard. We were expecting, like, some kind of, I mean, I guess it's not too far off, but, like, ancient old gods and, you know, yeah, somebody starting totally. a cult on this island. But just the, the complete, just 180 to vampires was really, really cool and very unique. Yes. And um, for anyone who has seen it and would like to read more about it, I think that we should link to the interview that I read that um, actually talked with the creator of the show. And he kind mm-hmm. of explained, like how he came to this idea and like what it all means like he kind of demystifies it because in a way i'm kind of like vampires and god and like (laughs) it doesn't really make sense but the way that he explains it it's kind of trippy and it does make sense so gonna share that (laughs) no absolutely i mean mike flanagan's brain is just so fascinating you know for those of you who may not be aware he's the same man that wrote and directed uh the haunting of hill house which is a and Bly wild Manor, right? ride. And Bly, I think he did Bly Manor, yeah. At least directed it. I know yeah. that one was more directly from a yeah. book. Um, but, I mean, just the the twists and turns that Hill House just throws at you. And then that ending. Oh, my God, that the ending. ending. <laughs> the first time I watched it, like, I think I just sat there and just stared at the TV as, like, I watched the credits roll. I was like, oh, my God. And then I made Kevin watch it. So I watched it for the second time. And it didn't, like, disappoint me the second time either. Like, I still enjoyed it the same way. Yeah. And it's the number of things that you catch the second time that you didn't see the first oh, time. Oh, 100%. Yes, yes. Absolutely. Oh, it's he's such a wonderful director. And it's just so much fun to see him having, you know, he's, he's visibly having fun with these shows. Yes. Yes. And that's just... And scaring uh, us all incredible. at the same time. It's a beautiful scaring thing. Scaring me shitless. <laughs> Ugh. That's one of the things that he does so well in his slow burn horror is Mm -hmm. he makes you forget that you're watching a horror movie. Oh, yeah. I did actually many, many times watching Midnight Mass. Oh, yeah. yeah, For sure. And then something jumps out of nowhere and it... Oh, yeah. Because he, like, makes you feel really comfortable with the characters. Yes. And then it's like, just kidding. I'm going to snatch this person away from you. How do you feel? (laughs) Yes. I, I think there's a scene where the sheriff turns off his son's light after this big long 10 minute monologue back and forth discussion yes and there's a face in the window oh i haven't i haven't been shook like that in a sense from a jump scare honestly since haunting of hill house when Uh two of the main characters were (laughs) arguing in the car oh my gosh yes flanagan you bastard oh my god that makes me want to rewatch hill house real bad i might it's spooky season it is time to do it spooky season (laughs) I mean, it's and always speaking of which, season. if you are looking for some inspiration this Halloween on our Conjuring Conversations Instagram page and on our Facebook page, there is a full watching guide. We looked through all of the very mm-hmm. best offerings from all of um, the streaming platforms and put together a comprehensive list. So if you need something to watch, please consult that list. You will find something you like. Absolutely. And on that same vein, if you need some good spooky ambiance for your night, we are actually working on a Conjuring Conversation Spotify playlist of all of our favorite Halloween (laughs) tunes. So keep an eye out for that. That's coming very, very soon. Also on our Instagram, you may have noticed that we are actually doing another giveaway in this spooky month of October. So head on over Mm -hmm. to our Instagram and enter for your chance to win a Sony recorder 
to take with you when you want to go find ghosts and have EVP sessions. EPV. Oh, EVP? EPV. It sounds like a disease. I'm confused now. It sounds like a disease. (laughs) Bring it back. Bring it back. (laughs) And one more super exciting announcement for the month of October, as if the entire month weren't exciting enough already, we will be releasing a special Halloween episode of Conjuring Conversations. True, true, true. So keep an eye out for that. But we're not going to tell you. What's going on with it yet? <laughs> oh no, that that is that is deep under wraps, like that new, or well, I guess the remake of that Disney Channel movie about the mummy. Oh yeah, <laughs> uh, it's all under wraps. So Ryan, here's like a kind of exciting piece of news. Okay, what you got? This week we have our first male guest. Oh my goodness! Applause! I'm applause. not alone. <laughs> we finally got a guy's perspective. <laughs> this week's guest is a non-traditional guest. He actually is also a UGA alumni, so go dogs. Go dogs. In college, he became very interested in legends, myths, lore, and got into local lore in Athens. He actually ended up writing a book proposal for the UGA press that didn't end up going through just for some PR reasons. But he did, luckily for us, write an academic paper about it and post his research online. So we're super excited to hear from him today and really like get into ghost lore from an academic standpoint, which is not something we've done here before. And you guys will notice for this interview that there is actually a substantial lack of Ryan of my obnoxious as hell voice (laughs) in this episode. And that is because the great Lord Jimmy Johns uh, betrayed me in my stomach and I was (laughs) actually sick for this interview. I know. That is the last time I have Jimmy John's, at least for a week. Oh, that's the end. The end for a week. <laughs> I won't tell. So this interview is going to be primarily conducted by Cameron, but we have some really good stuff to talk about. So tune in, guys. This is going to be a good one. Join us as we venture back into the classic city for one more night of Conjurings. Today, we're here interviewing Joseph Hopkins, another fellow UGA grad. Joseph, how's it going? Doing great. Thank you for having me. We are so happy to have you today. We read your paper. We're obsessed with it. And we have about a billion questions for you. So let's get right into it. Hit me. All right. So Joseph, we have a couple of just like introductory questions getting to know you. Where are you originally from and where are you now? Yeah, so I'm originally from North Georgia. Um, the Athens area, actually, but uh, I've lived in uh, Scandinavia for extended periods, other parts of the United States, and nowadays I live in Seattle, Washington. That's awesome. What are you up to there? Uh, I do a lot of writing, do a lot of reading, do a lot of hiking and biking. Um, pretty involved with a variety of things, and uh, I work in uh, content production professionally. And escaping kind of... the southern heat, too, right? Yeah. That's right. Even a cool <laughs> up here in Seattle. But back when you were in the Southern Heat, we saw that you actually studied Germanic and Slavic studies at UGA. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so I should clarify on that. Uh, I studied um, Germanic studies uh, as well as folklore studies more broadly and historical linguistics with uh, some other um, focuses beyond that as well. Like you know, folklore studies plays a big part in that too. Uh, but uh, it was largely through the Department of Germanic and Slavic Studies at the University of Georgia, and therefore Joe Brown uh, plays a big role. That uh, Joe Brown, we're talking about Joseph E. Brown Hall, which is a facility, a building at the University of Georgia. 
Yes, it is. <laughs> so if there was if there was one moment or one driving force, what kind of got you interested in the local Athens ghost stories? Yeah, so Return to Joe Brown, uh, I have had a long interest in folklore um, since I was a child, actually. You know, um, scary stories to tell in the dark. We are big fans of those. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we, I was too, you know. It was, uh, it was a hot... Um, a hot checkout at the uh, elementary school library, as I recall. Uh, I actually went to Whit Davis in uh, in Athens, uh, the elementary school there too. So uh, yeah, I believe it's Alvin Alvin Schwartz, right? Who authored that? In any case, Gamble's illustrations, uh, four scary stories to tell in the dark, really fantastic. I found that really inspiring, and um, that's probably one of the earliest examples of uh, encounters with folklore for me. Uh, at least in, in a bottle, I should say, you know, in everyday life, we sure. encounter uh, folklore. Right. Dust till dawn. Uh, that had a big role, as well as being read, uh, you know, the Grimm's um, Tales to mm-hmm. me as a child, uh, you know, um, that had a big impact on me. And of course, encountering all this stuff in media, it's just all over the place. Oh, at absolutely. All times. Yeah. But I feel like one big parallel that we can definitely draw between, you know, the author of Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark and you is that, well, at at first when I was young and I was reading these stories, I thought they were all just something that one man had, you know, put put on the paper from his brain. But then, you know, as I grew up and realizing that he was a collector of folklore and these were collections of stories from his travels and from, you know, folklore passed down through the ages was a really cool thing for adult me to discover. Right, you know, collections and retellings um, should should be. I guess I should be really clear about you know these retellings. So they're uh, you know palletized to an audience. They've been cleaned sure. up a bit yeah. and turned into a sort of literary product, uh, which is uh, very important uh, always to note these things. I think you know the Grimm's Tales, uh, Kindred and House Mansion. Um, those are also retellings, and they went mm-hmm. through of course several different editions mm-hmm. with different alterations. Uh, the natural environment for these these tales is oral, uh, which leads to right. a whole different set of presentation, you know, a different set of tools for the uh, teller. And, uh, you know, it's all very interesting to me. So uh, when you see these illustrations with scary stories telling the dark, it really adds to that, you know. Um, so what we can tell, it seems like you are pretty big into like maybe Greek, Norse, general Germanic lore. What's your favorite kind? Uh, well, I am really into uh, pre-Christian Germanic religion and Indo-European studies more broadly. So, um, you know, early Greek stuff is fantastic, mm-hmm. um, but really all forms of folklore are of interest to me, you know, whether it's myth, legend. Um, is there a difference between myth and legend? Yeah, yeah. These are overlapping and related genres, but uh, there is a difference between the two. For example, myth, you know, you're... The definition of myth is itself um, a huge topic to get into, but mm-hmm. you know, for the purpose of this discussion, let's just define it as um, stories about gods, right? Stories okay. about or featuring deities. Right, yeah. Okay. For simplicity's sake, let's just let's just say that. Whereas a legend usually has some sort of pretense of history associated mm-hmm. with it, right? So it's a specific genre um, that is uh, you know kind of vaguely defined with that sort of hallmark. So perhaps there was a, a legend that something occurred at this specific place in some sort of you know distant time in the past, right? Um, and it can involve maybe you know a person, maybe unnamed, not named, but mm-hmm. uh, you know legends can also feature deities as well. Right. So taking like Greek literature, for example, maybe like the Odyssey is technically a legend, but not necessarily a myth. 
Uh, well, the Odyssey does feature uh, many gods. You know, they're pretty active in it. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, uh, mm-hmm. there are elements of both. Mm-hmm. You can say that, yeah. So nothing, cool. you know, it's rare to find something that is purely this or that. There's going to be an amount of overlap, and then you get into discussion about the semantics of should gotcha. we consider this to be this or that. You know, it gets complicated. Gotcha. Well, pulling it back into Athens, what was it like going from studying like this kind of ancient literature to looking into local, not necessarily current, but still like orally active lore, ghost lore in Athens? Yeah. So when approaching things like myth, you know, people take a lot of different uh, paths, right? So you can take, um, you can get into to topics like myth without a background in folklore studies at all, mm-hmm. uh, which I think is, uh, um, I think it's important to have a foundation of folklore studies when talking about myth, right? If you're going to analyze it, it's really important to have comparative data, right? Mm-hmm. Something you compare it to, particularly if you have a very uh, complicated you know, corpus, a, a body of texts or, you know, whatever it might be, you know, depictions of gods or whatever. Um, it's important to be able to compare this to something else to be mm-hmm. able to sort of help get a handle on what you're seeing and what the context was or, or what have you. Uh, it's important that is if that's your goal yeah. in, in any case. And um, I was also very much uh, taking courses uh, related to the uh, uh, historical linguistics track of the mm-hmm. uh, MA, MA linguistics program at uh, UGA too. So I was taking things like Gothic and um, uh, a variety of other related courses. So my path was kind of unique. Right. It really wasn't that shocking to me. I mean, if you listen for it and if you're in uh, maybe some old Southern building or something, <laughs> it's not too unlikely that someone's going to say, Hey, you know, I think this building is haunted. <laughs> Right. Uh, not that unusual from my experience anyway. But it just so happens that at uh, Joe Brown Hall, uh, there was a sort of nexus of uh, narratives circulating that I kept hearing references to, right, about the right. staircase to nowhere, right? Yes. And for listeners, that is a staircase that, that literally just goes into a wall. There's a painting yep. on the wall, or there was last time I was there anyway, yep. <laughs> uh, of a Gutta study, you know. But um I thought this was interesting. You know, I didn't think too much about this staircase myself, but I kept hearing people, you know, reference it about hauntings and things like this. Right. And like I said, I've always had an interest in the ghost as an, an entity from folklore, you know, this, this mm-hmm. motif of the ghost and uh, was really um, intrigued by encountering these constant, you know, references to these things. So I said to myself, well, why don't I just do some field work myself and put together a project here because yeah. I'm very much interested in this topic and I have the tools at my disposal to launch a project such as this, even though I was working, you know, full time. Oh yeah. It's casual. You know, <laughs> I have like three hours of free time. Let's investigate some ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> right. Red right in the eyes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So before we go any further, I just want to establish do you believe in ghosts? I guess it depends on what you mean by believe in ghosts. Um, I mean, ghosts certainly exist in the minds of human mm-hmm. beings. It's uh, you know a, a concept that's very extensively ingrained in our language. You, know, you mm-hmm. can ghost someone. Um, you know, uh, you can give up the ghost. All these we use it as a, a symbol, right? right. The ghost. Uh, so to me, you know, it's. Uh, not really a question of whether a ghost exists, so to say, mm-hmm. but uh, it certainly exists uh, in the mind and in the discourse 
of human beings. And to me, that is certainly real enough to have, uh, you know, actual influence on uh, human beings. That might be the most unique answer we'll ever get on this podcast. So I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> glad to help. <laughs> so with that, I guess this might not be the best follow-up question, but I'm going to ask you anyway. Have you ever had what would like we would describe as like a paranormal experience? Like just something happened to you that you can't particularly explain or just a feeling, anything of that sort? You know, I wouldn't say so. I've like many people experience you know, night terrors, or mm. sleep paralysis, and I have you know sleep problems myself. Mm. But uh, I wouldn't ascribe um, the intervention of a ghost or, or anything like that to those things. Gotcha. Could you tell us, kind of in your words, like what is the story, as far as we know, of the Stairway to Nowhere? Yeah. I'm excited because you spent a lot of time in Joe Brown, right? I did several, several years there. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, that depends on who you ask because uh, they're going to give you what they've heard. And, um, right. you know, these things take on a variety of forms. Uh, they change and they can remain conservative. It just depends on um, mm -hmm. the context in which they're told on a variety of other things, right? Sure. So that is the true answer. It just depends. But um, ultimately, these uh, narratives around the staircase to nowhere tend to focus on that um, object, obviously, and, and attempt to explain its, its existence. Picture it. Your class started 10 minutes ago. Worse yet, despite your best efforts, you're getting nowhere fast. You're very new and very, very lost. Maybe it's because there's something just so off about this old building. Its white to nicotine corridors unexpectedly terminate. Ancient smelling bathrooms contain long unused showers and useless old ladders jut up from floors and into ceilings, to and from oblivion. Some rooms seem only accessible from outside. A hand-scrawled sign offers advice to the lost. It's not much help. You leave the hallway and you take a turn down a staircase. Somehow, you're back in the lobby. Windows are a welcome sight. Motion-triggered doors open before you. You step out into a hot courtyard and, blinded by the summer light, you see a door you haven't tried yet. Behind the door is a staircase? The staircase leads up, lacquered wooden handrails guide the way. At the top of the staircase, there's a door. You step closer, only to realize that it's not a door at all. It's a print of a door. From a distance, the false portal results in a vague optical illusion, an impression of an entrance to a room. There's no entrance here. There hasn't been one for a long time. Like many before you, you've experienced the uncanny disorientation of Joseph E. Brown Hall, commonly known as Joe Brown. You have stumbled upon the building's famous staircase to nowhere. Getting lost in Joe Brown is something of a rite of passage for students new to the two departments that the Hall houses, the Department of Germanic and Slavic Studies and the Department of Comparative Literature. Hang around Joe Brown long enough, and you might just hear unsettling explanations for Joe Brown's anatomical anomalies, 
many of them focused on the staircase to nowhere. And they do this usually by stating that there was some sort of death that occurred, right? Uh, right. Usually suicide, whether accidental or intentional. I believe it's been a while since I looked at the, you know, very variants I had there. Mm-hmm. And um, that they explain often that the wall was uh, placed there to block off the room because there was a stench, which is interesting because uh, although that is not exactly what happened historically, the stench, you know, the the experience of what actually did happen there and the mm-hmm. trauma involved certainly has uh, remained in some of those retellings, if, if not uh, the kernel of reality that yeah. led to those retellings. Reading your paper, I like just did a little bit of Googling and apparently this poor boy's official cause of death was autoerotic death. And I'm just like, uh, like I hate that for him. <laughs> uh, you can... You can dig into all of that uh, a little further. Yeah, I'll let the listeners dig into that themselves. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Hashtag it's unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and, and it, is a, it was a taboo topic at the time. Yeah, definitely. The media didn't report on exactly why it was, which led to things like speculation uh, among readers. And other than just being like kind of gruesome, why do you think that like that story, even when maybe there have been, you know, other suicides elsewhere on campus has like, stayed so prevalent because like we graduated recently i definitely knew that story i knew that like joe brown is haunted so like what is it about this story uh well it the building it's probably because of the you know and i'm going to speculate it's probably because of the, mm-hmm. the building itself you yeah know? the building itself is a strange one as anyone right. who's spending yeah. time there can tell you uh it features many many anatomical uh, mm-hmm. anomalies many many strange aspects yeah you know what it mostly reminds me of is um uh alien you know the first alien film <laughs> yeah with uh, all the ducks and like yeah. everything doesn't make sense it's just kind of oddly industrial there are no windows to speak yeah. of and everything is just kind of like gray you know yeah. <laughs> at least that's how i recall it after spending yeah. some time in there uh some rooms are kind of like damp and some rooms are hot you know it's clearly the result of that uh, remodeling job mm-hmm. what a wonderful former living space <laughs> <laughs> just really glad to be there <laughs> when it was a back when it was a dorm it may have been just a different story you know at one point Maybe it was so. just like very modern dorm uh, yeah they had made it yeah i guess in the time it definitely was it's it, pretty much everything I heard there was centered around the staircase to nowhere, mm-hmm. right? Which ultimately stems back to the accidental student death mm-hmm. uh, that occurred there uh, so long ago now. So I wouldn't say anything particular. You know, I did interview uh, custodians. Yes, I was actually going to ask about them. Right. And they, uh, you know, stated things like um, they found the building eerie. Mm-hmm. They mentioned also that uh, they felt like the automatic doors were like kind of opening on their own at certain times and mm-hmm. uh, things like that. So uh, faculty who work at, in the building also mentioned that, you know, they had heard things from others, but um, I don't think uh, any of them were taking uh, those uh, uh, narratives too terribly seriously, <laughs> at, at right. least, you know, at least not when they were talking to me. Okay, so now we're going to transition to talk about the Wedding Cake House, which on campus is more commonly known as the Alpha Gamma Delta House. Have you ever visited this house yourself? I have, yep. What was it like 
Well, uh, I didn't go inside. I wasn't allowed inside. Gotcha. I've certainly creeped around the exterior of it and taken mm-hmm. photos. Um, I uh, knew uh, some members um, of it, yeah. unexpectedly, <laughs> and uh, was therefore granted uh, access and a lot of information um, from those informants. That's so interesting. So before we get into more questions, could you just walk us through the supposed story of the Wedding Cake House? Sure, yeah. So the Wedding Cake House, which is a very um, heavily ornamented uh, white house Mm -hmm. on Village, uh, a mansion, uh, which is where uh, the Athens chapter of the Alpha Gamma Delta sorority Mm -hmm. is located uh, to this day. Uh, Well, it resembles a wedding cake and and as a result is known locally um, as the Wedding Cake House. Uh, This name also um, ties into a narrative uh, associated with the house, which, uh, you know, every member of the sorority in that chapter is well aware of. Mm -hmm. And that is, um, and it's going to depend again on who you hear from, you know, there there are variations. But the idea is usually something along the lines of that uh, in the distant past, uh, the uh, house uh, was a residence uh, for family, and sure. uh, there was a young woman who lived in this house, and uh, her name was Susie, mm-hmm. right? And Susie uh, was uh, stood up on her wedding day, and so she went into the attic, and uh, uh, she hung herself up there. It's my wedding day. Surrounded by friends and family in the home my father so graciously gifted me, I feel excited. Excited about my new marriage, excited to host my own gatherings and soirees in this column-clad home that stands so starkly against the skyline of Athens, Georgia. It was a wedding present, (laughs) but it wasn't until my wedding day that I realized the house, with its many layers and frills, looks like, well, it... It looks like a sugar-coated wedding cake. It's dashing nonetheless. While the rain started early this morning, arrangements were made to move the ceremony indoors. As I prepare with my wedding court, practicing each formality and reminding myself of the sacred oaths and steps I must take to ensure a proper ceremony, something is still missing. The whispers start. It's been over an hour since my betrothed was to arrive at the ceremony. It's not like him to be late, especially when something this important, our marriage and not to mention my dignity, is at stake. Time continues to pass and I feel my heart fluttering, myself panicking. I'm standing there in my long white wedding dress with all eyes on me. It's half past, now with only minutes to go until I'm to stand at the altar. I feel myself sliding into darkness. My life as a newly wedded woman in my beautiful home begins to slip away from me. It just can't be! My mother is weeping on the sidelines at the prospect of her eldest daughter becoming a a failure. I feel my vision going blurry. I'm pacing now the overwhelmingly sweet smell of magnolia flowers and hydrangea bushes making me feel faint. This day, my god, this day, 
ruined. I thought he I loved, loved me. I loved me. He loved me. As the bridesmaids start to file out, I, I just panic. I run. My mother and sisters yell after me, but I can't be stopped. My white dress and veil chase after me. I toss off my high heels. They'll only slow me down. I can barely see through my tears. And all I can hear is the sound of my feet pounding as I go up, up, up to the top floor of the house. I've made my decision. I catch myself in the mirror. The torn veil and running makeup. The tear-streaked face I no longer recognize. My mind and vision clouded, I search for the attic door. I fling it open, careening into the tight space. I search for a rope. I'd rather die than arrive at the altar alone. Susie! The storm. He was only running late. Because of the storm. Right. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, depending on which uh, version you hear of this, uh, the uh, groom may have, um, you know, been delayed or, and then shown up mm -hmm. later or what have you. But uh, the end result is, is generally the same. And that's that Susie essentially becomes this sort of, um, helpful spirit uh, yeah. for the uh, young women who live in the house mm -hmm. and is particularly associated with a room in the house called the, um, it's called the honeymoon suite, I believe, mm -hmm. uh, that is like on one of the top floors of the house. Uh, you can actually see some photos of the house, the exterior of the house yeah. uh, in the paper. Yes. <laughs> so it's an interesting um, setup here because it would seem to me that uh, everyone being well aware of this narrative, those who are more who, who are more likely to want to be wed at that age yeah. choose to stay in this room. And so you have a sort of positive reinforcement yeah. of this concept of it, you know, working. So uh, it seems to me that this has been going on since at least the seventies, some version mm -hmm. of this uh, tale is told. The sorority itself will either deny that there is such a narrative <laughs> or, or embrace it depending on who you speak to. You know, I think officially, as you'll see, or as I've seen anyway, with ghost lore, mm -hmm. people both absolutely delight and love it, and also will be kind of afraid to publicly show oh, that they really sure. enjoy the stuff. So in your paper, it seems like you don't really believe that Susie was a real person. Who do you think that Susie is based on? There actually is an individual uh, that Susie is based on, but it it's really complicated right <laughs> and like there's some history that's here that has been kind of compressed mm -hmm. and then it appears to have been um altered to fit the needs of the sorority itself sure so essentially what has happened is this this historic figure who did not hang herself mm -hmm. um who was a um, actually one of few surviving members of that initial family who had you know died off for various reasons including her right. sister um she continued to live and another family moved in. And then at some point after that, it was purchased by the sorority, the house was, right? right? So at some point, some sort of narrative developed, perhaps under literary influence, you know, there's some, there's a variety of things that could have influenced this idea. Yeah. Uh, 
this sort of proto sorority sister guardian spirit develops out of that compressed, you know, altered history within a pretty short period of time, actually. Um, and led to, you know, this modern day Susie who, um, you know, helps sorority girls you know, yeah. get married, <laughs> which is uh, a very conservative, you know, approach yeah. uh, that um, fits, that's very much in line with certain ideologies surrounding these particularly Southern uh, sorority chapters. Right. I am still very curious as to how this developed exactly how Susie came to crystallize and exactly when is a really good question. I think the earliest <laughs> reference to her is in the seventies, mm-hmm. you know, and this is, this is interesting in other ways too. Local spirits, you know, historically, uh, mm-hmm. how might they have developed, you know, among yeah. human beings as a concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, so motifs come from somewhere else, they become attached to a location and then all the stuff sort of springs up around them and the sort of culture builds, right? And this is definitely what we see with Susie. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, this is a, you can't talk about the wedding cake house uh, without talking about this concept of Susie, right. in my opinion. Right. That to me is super fascinating. And we'll uh, see how things, things develop, especially now that uh, they're well aware of my paper. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that, you know, that's interesting too. Like, you know, when someone does put together a piece like this, a piece of work and compiles these things, mm-hmm. it can be disruptive to the discourse uh, in those groups. It can suddenly start influencing them uh, because I know they're very well aware of it because I've spoken to them right. you know, about this. Yeah. And uh, you know, like I said, I had informants within the uh, chapter and so forth too. would be interesting to follow up on this sometime in the future and, and see exactly uh, what's going on. There. Yeah. If you do let us know, because we are very interested in this. And um, just everything that you just said is really fascinating. And even when I was reading over the paper, um, everything that you were saying, it completely made sense. And like the way that lore originates itself. And it had me thinking even just as basic as like the development of Christianity and like how we know it now, like the way that obviously like original text must have been altered for different points of view and like how that has become as we know it now. It's just interesting because this is like a very, very tiny like case study on that development. It's awesome. Right. Yeah. So I was talking about comparative data earlier. You know, this yeah. stuff is all, you know, you can see it happen in real time, you know. Yeah. As for the development of like, you know, uh, Fertile Crescent polytheism and then turning mm-hmm. into Yahweh, which, you know, would eventually lead to Christianity mm-hmm. and Rome. You know, that's a, yeah, that's another, that's a different ball game. <laughs> <laughs> that's a different podcast. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely a much bigger scope yeah. than what we're dealing with here, but uh, I see what you're saying for sure. And uh, it is, it is super fascinating to me too. And one of the reasons why I was like, yeah, I should definitely do this. This will inform other things that I do. And, um, you know, it's important to do field work and witness these things uh, occur. For sure. So for these informants, as you call them, had any of them had any sort of experience with Susie or just like the ghosts in the house? Not those I was most closely speaking to. You mm-hmm. know, some of the sources that I was pulling from, you can witness people talking about like, oh yeah, I saw Susie or I yeah. encountered her in some way, shape or form. Could also be too that they knew me and uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, they may not be as forthcoming because of that. You know, they think I was like analyzing them or something. Mm-hmm. But uh, they were pretty straightforward about it. Interesting. So from what we can tell, the most 
common occurrences from Susie would just be kind of like lights going on and off, doors opening and closing, some noises. So if it's not Susie, do you think that maybe someone who actually did die in the house is left over to haunt it? Uh, I would I would leave that to the <laughs> sorority to to explain. You know, that's up to them to, to say, I suppose. And listeners, just so you know, the two people that I was referring to that did die in the house were two former owners of the Wedding Cake House, William Winstead Thomas and James Yancey Carothers. So that's where we get the name, the Thomas Carothers House. People die in old houses. And they name it after them. So we talked pretty extensively about how stories can develop in small groups. And um, what I would like to talk about now is maybe like the effects of outside influences on these groups and like the way that the stories are told. Um, In your paper, you talked a lot about the media and either the lack thereof of coverage or just weird coverage in general. So how do you think that... um, the outside media kind of like has affected the story as it's developed over the years. Yeah. So uh, the third part of the book is interesting in this regard, because you'll notice that in old Athens media, um, they were reporting on sightings of ghosts uh, yeah. a fair amount. You know? Yeah. The more colorful, the better it seemed around the time in which, for example, you know, I discussed at some point a something called legend tripping, right? Which is this concept this this activity that can occur, particularly among young people, where they go to um, say a graveyard or something, mm-hmm. and and something is supposed to have occurred there, or will occur there, right? So they are um, checking out a legend basically, and they're going on a trip to check it out. In this case, I suspect that this craze uh, had an impact on the crystallization of the uh, narrative complex. You mm-hmm. know, uh, at Joe Brown Hall, right? Because on that very same newspaper, uh, Red and Black Report, its front page, has this like really mysterious, kind of odd, you know, really hedging yeah. report with yeah. some misinformation about the death at Joe Brown. And like right next to it is the stuff about um, a ghost craze involving, <laughs> you know, the cemetery, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, and it's not like there was a ton of this stuff in the media at the time either. Uh, and it's hard to say what was going on among the general student body and that wasn't making it into, you know, these media outlets as well. Mm-hmm. But there's some sort of like, you know, influence there most likely. And media influences in many, many ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not like, you know, naturally born with this idea of a ghost as this, um, this like glowing um, bed sheet with a couple eyes on it, you know, <laughs> that is an idea that is uh, instilled in us by way of our exposure to other people as way as well as like media sources you know right media has a tendency to sort of canonize things and that idea so that when we think of a ghost nowadays you know one of the first ideas that come to mind is this like pac-man ghost like picture right mm-hmm. so probably the biggest influence on us is like film you know on about ghosts. yeah definitely so uh you know media can impact us in many many ways and one of them is in uh defining you know entities from folklore mm-hmm. it's just one of the numerous ways All right, listeners, to wrap up this episode, we actually asked Joseph himself to read us a little excerpt from his paper, so I'm going to let him take it away. Ultimately, Susie is the wedding cake house. She personifies the history of the structure. At the Thomas Carruthers house, fact and fiction merge to form an entity that dwells in the minds and hearts of Alpha Gamma Delta members 
generation after generation. Whether dismissed or embraced, Susie remains an icon that reflects the desires and fears of the social group that produced her. Joseph's paper is actually called Athens Ghost Lore, Studies on the Folklore of Ghosts at the University of Georgia and the Athens, Georgia region. It can be read online and we're gonna link to it on social. And Joseph, thank you so, so much for your time today. We were so happy to talk to you. Thank you very much for having me. Nice to meet you all. This has been a production of Conjuring Conversations, hosted by Ryan Cameron and Cameron Rogers. Produced by Sophie Gradas. Main theme written by Miller May. Our cover art was created by Camille Sowell. Find her on Instagram at uncomforta underscore bill. That's U-N-C-O-M-F-O-R-T-A underscore bill, B-I-L-L. No authorized reproduction of this podcast is permitted without the explicit consent of Conjuring Conversations. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved.